And so this has some pretty very relevant and deleterious consequences, right? We lose our ability to perform our activities of daily living. So then we ultimately lose our physical independence and then, you know, end up having to reside in nursing homes and that uh, older adults. So one of the facts I like to tell people about aging and, and, you know, it's different from a younger person perspective, but they fear losing their independence and being put in a nursing home way more than they fear death. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre, skincare for athletes. Whether you're in the gym, on the mats, on the road, or in the pool, we protect your skin so you're more comfortable in your own body. To learn more, go to solpre.com. Today on the Smart Athlete Podcast, my guest has his PhD in human bioenergetics. He's currently a professor at Georgia Southern University. Not only that, he has an impressive two overall Ironman 70.3 wins under his belt and is racing for Everyman Jack. Welcome to the show today, Dr. Greg, Greg Grosicki. Thanks for having me. Greg, sorry, I almost mispronounced your name there again. Oh, that's all right. <laughs> First time. Not for you, but... <laughs> Get a little tongue-tied. Yeah, yeah, sure. Too many Gs. Have you considered, like, revising that? Maybe, like, becoming Frank or something like that? Uh, I kind of like the uniqueness of it. It's all right. <laughs> Makes it easy to stand out when I search for uh, my own publications. You know, there's not that many Grosickies out there. So Yeah, super easy. Did you get any... <laughs> Uh, this is like a personal aside, but so last, my last name is Funk, F-U-N-K. Yep. So like I got all kinds of like nicknames along the way from the schooling. Do you remember anything like any oh, kind of odd nicknames? Yeah. <laughs> I already feel bad for my kids. It's like, oh, geez. <laughs> you, know, you could like, you could like uh, hyphenate it for some, for no reason at all. Like Rosicky dash awesome or like. Yeah. Just something in the back. Well, you can shorten it to awesome if you want to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, I've had a couple of people say I should talk to you, so I'm happy to have you here. Um, previously, Todd Buckingham and then Corey also recommended you. And then I think you know, as you mentioned before we were on talking, you listened to Chris Douglas's episode. I think you know Chris as well. Yep, definitely. I'm going to go train with him this weekend, so. Good deal. Um, and then I think I have your friend Richard coming on next week. So it's like this confluence of all the people you know. Hopefully yeah. you're the like the nucleus here. I've coached many of them. I found Corey's girlfriend. I coach Richard's girlfriend. Coach Richard. <laughs> yeah, so it seems like you are the nucleus. And, and for somewhat makes sense. I watched your lecture um, yesterday. Uh, I think was was that lecture, was that from your dissertation? No, so actually, well, some of it was. Um, okay. A lot of it was the the first half on the on the uh, contractile properties of single muscle fibers. Mm -hmm. That was dissertation work. Okay. State, and then the second half of the lecture, the uh, gut microbiota stuff. That stuff I I did when I was at my postdoc up in Boston. That's okay. where I met Corey and Richard. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um. So can you kind of give us the the shorter version of like what you're doing now, what you do, like what you're interested in. Sure. Yeah. So I feel like I'm a man of many hats. And one of the funny things, uh, I'd be curious for you to ask other people who have gone through the academic process and maybe yourself, I, I don't know, but I always feel like in life so far, I've been in school for basically 29 years, right? Like <laughs> last year is my first year not being in school. And all the time in school, I thought like, 
as soon as I finish school, as soon as I get my job, everything's going to settle down. Life's going to get easier, right? It's going to get slower. And that hasn't been the case at all. Mm -hmm. So you can talk to Richard about this. He just graduated uh, from MIT. So obviously uh, he's got a lot going on upstairs. Yeah. Very stressed about it. And, you know, he was working on defending his dissertation. I just didn't have heart to tell him that it only gets down, it goes downhill from here. <laughs> but, but suffice to say, a bit of a tangent there. But yeah, so I'm an assistant professor. So I uh, teach three classes a semester here at Georgia Southern. I mentor, uh, I'm currently mentoring five master's students. Mm -hmm. um, we have a master's of sports medicine program here. And so they, uh, for their master's, program they have to conduct an independent research study and so they're conducting all sorts of different uh, exercise based research studies um i have a few research studies of my own we recently got some funding from the uh from internal funding from from the school here to, mm -hmm. to study so we're really looking forward to getting started with that i have uh, a couple collaborations with people in uh in california some laboratories in california Doing a couple research studies, we have one coming up. We're uh, studying one of these ultra marathon runners. Mm -hmm. He uh, trains for and is going to race Western states. So we're really excited about that. It's uh, 16 days away. Mm -hmm. As he, I mean, he's counting down the day, like literally every day. You know, I just yeah. from him. As a matter of fact, um, tell me <laughs> he's got on his shoes. No joke. And uh, so doing that, and I, I also coach 12 athletes um, on the side. So that's my saturdays and sundays and nights and uh, and yeah that's that's more or less what i'm doing i i do a bit of consulting for some industries industry companies you see what always like amazes me and i guess i'm not that dissimilar and then i run two businesses and train but like it seems like especially you but a, a lot of people i talk to are just insanely busy yet somehow still seem to figure out you know how to fit in the time to train for uh, you know, triathlon in general or 70.3 or full Ironmans, it's like, I'm always curious, everybody's, it's like strategy for time management, if there is a time management schedule or, or if it's just like, go like hell until it's all done. Yeah, I think it's uh, the inability to say no to things that I like, right? I think it's like, if we love what we're doing, we just, like, you, you can't say no. It's like, yeah, more projects, that's awesome. Like, I'd love to do this. Which I think is great, right? It means we're doing mm -hmm. like, which most people aren't. <laughs> Just talk to your friends, right? Everyone complains about being at work. And I'm like, all right, it's like getting like, I gotta leave work, right? It's not like I, it's never like I have to go to work. It's like, I love it. So that's part of the problem. And then the other, like, you know, you make the point about triathlon. I guess I'm fortunate that I'm surrounded by mostly people who do work out. Like all my colleagues are, mm -hmm. they all work out. And all, most of my students, work out which like i don't know why they would be studying exercise science if they didn't just seems right. totally toxical to me right um but for me i can't understand how people could make it through a day without <laughs> like like working out right like when i go mm. like take my two weeks off i'm like man what am i going to do with all this free time here like sleeping in till seven or eight o'clock this is this is strange right yeah um so yeah i guess it's kind of just the lifestyle that you choose and people you surround yourself with right i'm sure like i don't know what time like i'm sure you're probably not waking up at night eight or nine o'clock in the morning most days no not most days i mean it, it depends on the day i i try not to use an alarm clock most of the time although i started to recently but i'm <laughs> up between i'm up between six and seven it, it just depends um like i said i i 
if I can help it, I won't use the alarm clock. So just so my body can yeah, sleep yeah. as long as it needs to sleep. Because I don't, I don't have to go to a job per se. There's plenty I have to get done during the day, yep. but like I'm the guy in charge. So if I'm late, I'm not right. Yeah. <laughs> if it doesn't get done, it's only you, right? <laughs> right. Right. It's only my fault. So, um, yeah, no, I'm still waking up relatively early. And then um, I always like to joke with my girlfriend, or we joke about being 80 because we'll go to bed at like nine or 10 o'clock. Yeah, I'm like, oh, right, it's 30. Yeah. Yep, exactly. So Not not night owls. No, I think it's all about just, you know, having that, I, I don't know, I'm pretty rigid with my schedule. Maybe you're not since your job's a little more flexible, but it's kind of like, you know, this is the time I'm getting up and then going to bed at the right time and things like mm -hmm. that. Um, you make time for what you want to do, right? Right, right. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty, it's not super rigid, but it's definitely like, it, if I'm not like, so my swim days, I get up early. I'm at the pool by seven 30, but the other days I'll try to get some work done and then, um, work out by nine in the morning, work out, start at nine so that everything's done before noon. And then the afternoon's free for more, you know, work stuff. So it's like, I'm not, it's not super rigid, but I definitely have like guidelines. I'm like Jack Sparrow right now. They're not rules or guidelines. Um, yeah, yeah. I keep a rough schedule going on most of the time. Yeah, I'm sure. So, um, so I'm going to jump in a little bit to like some of the things you talked about in your um, presentation. And I'll, I'll actually put a link down in the description for anybody on YouTube watching. Um, you can click over and uh, listen to Greg's uh, talk if you'd like to. So I, we'll kind of go a little bit through and in, in kind of chronological order because that's how I took my notes. Sure. Um, but I'm kind of curious if you can give us like the short version about, it seems like you do a lot with aging and like fitness and changes in the body as we age. Yep. So at the beginning of your talk, you talked about like loss of muscle mass versus loss of muscle quality. Um, can you kind of give the short version of like why the difference matters and kind of what's happening? Yeah, sure, sure. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer that question. I will, but I guess it takes a step back. So I, uh, I kind of got into the whole exercise science thing, right? Just because I loved exercise. And when I was an undergrad, I was like, well, that seems like a pretty cool major. I could study exercise. Yeah. Um, and then like kind of ironically or fortunately, depending on how you look at it enough, everywhere I would go, they'd be, it would be a program where they'd be studying aging, either uh, cardiovascular disease or, or skeletal muscle or things mm -hmm. that happen to the body with aging. And then I was like, well, this is pretty cool. And it kind of gives me a way to focus on something exercise related that's a little bit tangential to my personal interest. So I think that's kind of why I started, got involved with the, with the aging thing, right? From mm -hmm. a research perspective. Right. Um, and so essentially a lot of my, my work is focused on aging and muscle and, and this condition known as sarcopenia, which is uh, everyone's heard of osteopenia or osteoporosis, the loss of bone with age and, and bone mineral density that predisposes us to uh, greater likelihood of, of fractures in our bones. But sarcopenia uh, comes from the Greek word sarp, which means flesh, and then penia meaning poverty. So we're talking about the, the poverty of flesh or the loss of muscle mass or, or more relevantly function, strength or power of that muscle that is known to occur with aging. And about the uh, fourth decade of life, so about 30 years old, which uh, fortunately I'm right at now, 
uh, we start to lose our muscle mass at a rate of different between different individuals, but it's generally about 10% per decade mm-hmm. um, and tends to accelerate a little bit more, gets a little more precipitous as we get even older. Um, and so this has some pretty very relevant and deleterious consequences, right? We lose our ability to perform our activities of daily living. So then we ultimately lose our physical independence and then, you know, end up having to reside in nursing homes and that uh, older adults. So one of the facts I like to tell people about aging and, and, you know, it's different from a younger person perspective, but they fear losing their independence and being put in a nursing home way more than they fear death. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just a bit of a different mind shift, right, when they get older. And so a lot of my research is focused on that process and mechanisms underlying it. And then in, and as well as uh, how can exercise, which is undoubtedly hands down the most potent uh, preventative therapy for preventative and, and also, pro- and also um, probably the best treatment for the sarcopenia or that age-related muscle wasting that occurs with aging. So uh, that's what a lot of my research has done. Um, so this is like, uh, I want to say, it's kind of a, a lark a little bit, but have you seen these just, I call them spam ads, you know, like you're reading an article and you'll see like this one weird food and like all those kind of different ads. Yeah. Okay. So sometimes you'll see an ad and it'll have like what looks like an 80 year old guy with the, like the physique of like Arnold in his prime, Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime. Yeah. And you're like, okay, well that's clearly not real, but it is unless he's taking, I don't even know, like a enough to, like testosterone and HGH right. to kill a horse. Um, you see in Corey. <laughs> I'm a pharmacist for that one, right? Yeah. I'll have to go talk to Corey. Um, I mean, is it like, is there anything we can do as far as like, say somebody's not worked out ever before and now they're 60 and, and they're like, you know, crap, my, my mobility's in the toilet. You know, there's nothing wrong with them in terms of no bone breaks or any like mobility issues, but like they're, they're feeling the effects of aging. Is there routines or supplements or like what, is there any like practical um, ideas you'd have about how to help them? Yeah, I mean, well, so, you know, these studies started back in the 1980s, and there was a study published in, in 1990, actually, in the New England Journal of Medicine, that basically looked at uh, muscle responsiveness in people, just as you were describing. They were a bit mm-hmm. older, even they were, um, I think they were in their 80s, or maybe even their 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very well cited in the literature. And basically, it just shows that even in individuals like that, who are maybe residing in nursing homes, even, um, their muscles can still, uh, muscle is, is probably one of, and I would probably argue the most adaptable tissue that we have mm-hmm. in the human body, the way that muscle can respond to and change in response to exercise stimulus is remarkable. And so even in someone who's 60, um, and maybe extremely sedentary, uh, their muscles are not they're not beyond health, right? They're still, they still can respond. And so uh, doing physical activity or, or encouraging them to do some sort of structured exercise can still impart extremely beneficial effects 
massive gains in muscle size and strength. Um, and so they're not beyond help for sure. And it doesn't take uh, an hour in the gym of intense weightlifting to get these benefits, particularly in someone who's sedentary. And so, uh, so there's still a lot of, there's still hope um, for them. So, yeah. So, okay. So obviously we can, you know, if I'm 60 or 70, I can, you know, gain mobility back. Is there any hope for me to become uh, like a champion bodybuilder at that point or is all hope lost? Uh, that one's probably one you, you lost out <laughs> when you were, uh, when you were born. Probably need to talk, consult with the parents on that one. I just want to check, you know, it's like, like I said, the, the reason I bring up the spam ads is they kind of like play on our insecurities and fears and hopes and dreams. And so I'm always just like, is there any inkling of truth to like whatever these people are peddling and you seem like the guy to ask. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, unfortunately you can see, uh, not, a, not a ton of muscle mass myself. So <laughs> I'm hoping I can maintain as functional as possible. Right. Um, as I get older, maybe, maybe pick up hitting the weights a bit more at some point in my life. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, uh, even, even aerobic exercise can make muscle, uh, it can improve the strength and, and the function of muscle, uh, potently. So, um, yeah, even triathlon. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, it, you don't really, it doesn't make sense for you to be big, um, considering, you know, how competitive you are as an endurance athlete. I mean, sure. you need some muscle to some degree, but, uh, you know, as we know, it's a, it's a, power weight ratio you know formula we're working with uh, on a base level obviously there's there's fluctuations within that sure uh, so it doesn't make sense for you to be huge unless you just like have a huge lifestyle change and you're like forget triathlon like mr universe is where it's at yep yep and you got to look at the uh the size of the muscle relative to the size of the body too right Mm -hmm. So the muscle only has to be as strong as, as strong enough to move the body around. So if the body's not big, then don't necessarily need this gratuitous quantity of muscle tissue, right? I didn't take a note on this, but you, you reminded me of, you were talking about like the, util, I think it was like the utilization of energy per like amount of muscle fiber or something like that. And you're comparing like older people to younger people and have there's like these um, the older people seem to have a higher utilization per amount of muscle fiber. Do you know what I'm talking about? Am I on yeah, track so, at all? So, I do know. So one of the things that happens as you get older, right? We know our muscle gets smaller. We've already said that. Um, there's two underlying factors for this. So the amount of muscle cells we have decreases substantially. So like um, in our quadriceps muscle, we, we have a young person, you or I may have half a million a million muscle fibers mm -hmm. that'll decrease by about 50 percent um, by the time we're 80 years old that's one of them and the other one is the just the number of them the other one is the size of those muscle fibers is reduced drastically but the question is what happens to the contractile proteins the, the actual proteins in that muscle fiber that make it contract mm -hmm. and it appears to be that there's a bit of a compensatory or an adaptive mechanism at play as we get older where even though some of the components of these muscle cells do seem to go away uh, the contractile machinery the proteins within the muscle fiber seem to be preserved and because of that 
if we look at the the functionality of these fibers relative to their size, uh, it seems to be preserved or possibly a little bit improved. Mm. Um, and so that's kind of one of these uh, things. It, it's, not, it's not often thought. It's all. It's usually considered that with aging, everything is going down the toilet, right? Mm. Uh, our physiology is just. But there are some things that go on the body that uh, appear to compensate for the aging process, right? Mm -hmm. So one of them appears to be that that uh, the, the the proteins the 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 muscles are are good at preserving the specific proteins that are responsible for contraction, and maybe some of the less important proteins seem to go away. So, so like this composition that happens is so. I guess I'll back up a little bit. I'll. My one of my coaches um, gave me this like I guess I'll say a rough time scale and we'll keep it as a rough but like say the times you could like the, your 5k time when you're a 19 year old yeah he was saying you know you can increase that you'll get faster and then as we know endurance peaks I'll say 35 plus or minus five years depending yeah, on the individual yeah, yeah. and then goes down from there and he was saying basically you have this curve from 19 to like almost like 50 60 where at 50 60 you should assuming you continue working out you should still be able to run a similar time as to when you were 19 sure timeline aside there's going to be some variation clearly yeah um you think that that compensation is that partially what's probably at play there to help keep that performance level higher later on despite the loss in muscle yeah, that's a good question. Uh, so, so to be honest, I don't think a whole lot is happening necessarily between 40, 50 with the okay. muscle. I think most of that is going on later. Um, and if we look at what's actually limiting our performance, and you said a 5K. So yeah, yeah. if you look at the physiology uh, that's ultimately influencing our ability to perform in a 5K, a lot of it is going to be related to our aerobic capacity mm -hmm. or how much oxygen we can consume. So uh, if we look at factors influencing, influencing cardiovascular fitness or aerobic capacity, if you will, um, again, those are what's going to influence this, this 5K time most. And we know that much like muscle, cardiovascular fitness also declines with aging. Mm-hmm. One of the primary reasons for that is our our maximum heart rate declines. You mm -hmm. may have seen that a little bit, or if you've ever seen someone who's really young, like a high school kid, um, or or someone who's young, some of my young college students will test over in the lab, can get a heart rate of 205 beats per minute, right? Which if mm -hmm. I see that in training, I'm calling the cardiologist. Like <laughs> uh, my, my heart rate doesn't get that high, right? Um, but that's one of the reasons our cardiovascular capacity tends to decline a bit with aging mm -hmm. and and so one of the things that happens as we get older is our heart actually gets bigger there's a scientist uh, his name's ben levine and he's down at texas and he studies this in masters athletes and so the heart gets bigger as a as a again compensatory mechanism right. to compensate if you will some may say compensatory mechanism others would say it gets bigger because you've finally given it enough stimulus this is takes a long time to evoke this hypertrophy of the heart. And uh, so that increase in size of the heart is, is compensating for the fact that the heart can't beat as fast. So it's not beating as fast, but every time it's beating, it's pumping out more blood. 
Mm -hmm. And so that's that would be the mechanism that I would say would help to preserve, like you said, uh, your performance and potential to maybe 50 years, 50, maybe mm -hmm. uh, plus or minus 10 years, <laughs> right? years of age um, for, for like that type of event. Okay. And I mean, does it so since our aerobic capacity goes down, I would assume that like our maximum, I'll say like the genetic maximum of your VO2 max, that also probably goes down over time. Mm, so aerobic capacity, same VO2 max. Those okay. Same, same, same thing. Okay, okay. I would use the synonymous. synonymous. Okay. Okay. So I was just like trying to get all my terms correct. Sorry. Yeah. 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 No, no, no. That's fine. I throw these things around and. No. And, and, and part of it's like sometimes I know a fair about, about what we're talking about. And then sometimes it's like I only know enough to be dangerous. So that's why it's like. Don't worry. Sure these are not uh, writing articles and trying to convince people to drink some sort of weird concoction no that's what as i got you see on, as you see online right that's when it gets dangerous that's what i've got you here for is to like clarify things and that's like i always want to know what's going on and, and anytime i like make a recommendation or i don't know if you've seen anything about the company but i make skincare products for athletes and so anytime i'm going into like formulate something i'm digging through scholarly research to see like what what does the research say before uh, you know, try to make a formulation because there's so much, uh, I don't know what to, I don't know what to call it. There's a lot of people that are shysters basically. Oh, for um, sure. and it just irritates the heck out of me. Um, which is actually something that I was, I was kind of curious about in your opinion. Like I saw you post this on your Instagram. I, I can't remember what this, the study was, but it, some, somebody had wrote an article and they like misattributed the, the results of a study and like, said some, something that really kind of almost outlandish like how do you deal with like misattribution of results from studies when like you can clearly see that's not actually what they're talking about and then you see these i'll call them pop articles they're saying you know the future is here and we're going to live forever and like all these just kind of wild claims like how do you deal with that yeah it's tough um and i feel like it behooves us, unfortunately, probably just to keep quiet about it mostly, right? Just try to do our best to when we're communicating. Uh, uh, well, here's what, here's what I'll say. So I guess kind of rewind a bit. The best way I think to deal with that is something I learned when I was at, uh, at Ball State, actually. So David Costell started the lab at Ball State, mm -hmm. and he's one of the premier uh, exercise physiologists in the U.S. He was first to do the skeletal muscle biopsy. He wrote the book on exercise physiology, literally. And one of the messages that I think I learned from him, uh, he was very, so clearly as, as academicians, if you will, we're, we're busy. But Dave never shied away from talking to the media or, or speaking with Runner's World. And so I think by trying to communicate with the lay public, mm -hmm. I think that's probably one of the best proactive approaches to making sure that the information that we're learning in the lab is being translated properly externally, right? Mm -hmm. I feel like that's one of the biggest problems with scientists is they get so caught up in writing their publications. And, and it's like, even when like talking to you, like I'll use aerobic capacity and VO2 max interchangeably. And like, I just totally, you get caught so caught up in your own world, right? That, mm -hmm. And scientists, you just get so busy. It's like, I got to write this grant. And sometimes 
like what's the point of doing all the work if the only people who are hearing it are like me and then the guy who's doing the experiments on some other lab and they're mm -hmm. trying to prove it's like that's a huge waste right and so right. i think science in general and i think many other scientists would probably echo this ethos that the scientists in general just need to do a far better job of disseminating their work and being transparent about what it is they're doing and and that means also uh being honest and transparent about the strengths and weaknesses of the studies they're doing so right i think one of the problems that we run into and i'll harken back to a, a math professor i had this is the first 400 level math class i took and it was taught by a guy who was this is his first year as a professor um and the class was what he did his dissertation on and he ended up teaching it we, we learned i almost failed that class and we learned after the fact that he was like oh you know i think i actually taught that at a graduate level instead of an undergraduate level yeah and it, the, i think the issue was more so that he was so into what he was doing and knew so much he, he's so far down the rabbit hole in that field that he was unable at the time to pop back up with kind of a fresh look and think okay if i knew nothing where would i start exactly so i think the issue is more a lack of skill on kind of like the academics part in knowing how to translate academic world to a lay person um, which is which is why you get you know kind of a few like iconic people who don't necessarily always have the best academic background like like bill nye has always gone to as like this figurehead for science well there are, i would say you among plenty of other people in research have a deeper academic background than he does but he does a good job with communicating those sometimes complex ideas to people that have no idea what's going on. Spot on. Yeah. It's a hundred percent the case. And that's why, like, you know, I'm not trying to make a sales pitch here, but like on my Instagram and, and it's actually faded away in the spring as I got busy, but I'll try to do my best at least to make like a one paragraph blurb about some sort of science yeah. article that I read because it's like, I feel like that's our responsibility as scientists part of it. And it's like, you know, I don't get paid to do that. Like, right. nowhere in my job contract are they going to look at my Instagram. Like, when I go up to <laughs> tenure, and I, oh, Grosicki's got 15 Instagram posts since 2000, you know. But, uh. It's not going to get tenure until he has 10,000 followers. I'll be in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> you better get me a lot of followers. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So, but I, but there are people out there who are good at it. Um, mm -hmm. you know, they're also. I'm not even going to mention any names because uh, I don't want them getting any more followers, but there are absolute idiots out there that get, you know, people worship their, their stuff. And Yeah. Well, there's, it's, there's also this intersection where like, uh, you know, I'm in marketing clearly cause I have to market my products, but um, there is like a dark side of marketing where like you learn about these kind of psychological triggers with people and like, how to communicate your message effectively. And when you're trying to, in my case, bring a product that solves people's problems, you're doing, at least in my opinion, good for the world. But there are people that understand those marketing principles and don't have good intentions and use them just to manipulate people to do whatever, you know, 
they want them to do, whether it's give them money or or fame or whatever it is. They figure out how to, you know, kind of tweak these little triggers in, in people's heads, these kind of unconscious biases that we have. Um, so, yeah, it, it's not as cut and dry as like the people that know the most are always the most popular or most like well-spoken because they're two different skills. Certainly. Yep. I mean, the same thing with science. It's got, it's got its dark sides too, right? In the yeah. end, your, your, your research has to tell a story and if it doesn't, it's probably not going to get published. So, you know, the way statistics can be done and, and the way things are written in the discussion, right? It's, it's all mm-hmm. sales. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk a little bit like, I think this is what you're doing now. Uh, you're doing something microbiome in that's, your gut. That's probably the most, uh, so in the gut, but as you are aware, or may, I mean, you're probably aware if you're making skin products, you know, the skin has its own microbiome. The skin flora, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, our, our, it's kind of crazy, actually, if you think about it. Uh, there's bacteria living all over us and around mm-hmm. us and, and inside of us. Um, but yeah, well, sorry, I'll. I cut you off. No, 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 you're fine. You're fine. Um, so first, some definitions, just so we're clear. Yeah. Microbiota versus microbiome. Yep. Simple. So, uh, and a lot of people don't use it right. So the microbiota refers to the actual bacteria. Bugs, if you will, right? Mm-hmm. Microbiome is, they're frequently used interchangeably, but it actually refers to, if you're looking at the gene expression of those bacteria. Okay, can you can you rephrase that a different way? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so here, here's here's the here's the easiest way I'll describe it. Right. If I had a, a bunch of bacteria, rather they're so small, mm-hmm. rather than going through and saying that's one of these, that's a, that's bacteria A, that's bacteria B, that's bacteria C. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take all the bacteria. I'm going to stick them in a gene sequencer, if you will, mm-hmm. and I'm going to say, okay, I had. X amount of gene expression from bacteria A, X amount of genes being expressed from bacteria B, and then this amount of genes being expressed from bacteria C. So really, you're just using gene expression to quantify which bacteria are or are not there. Does that make sense? Okay, let me see if I can try to rephrase. So is it, is it more like the not the necessarily the specific bacteria that's present, but the uh function that they provide within the gut so uh, let me let me think about <laughs> so so the microbiota are actually the bacteria i think okay. we got that right 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 uh the the microbiome would just be the gene expression of that bacteria so i'm so trying to break down the words gene expression into something else is so what you I'm could identify like let's just say an earthworm based on its bacteria okay or I'm sorry, based on its gene expression. You could identify an earth, a, a, a certain bacteria based on its gene expression. So we're quantifying the gene expression to understand what bacteria are present. Okay. I, I have follow, but I'm just trying to figure out what, what's coming out. Is it like with, with a gene expression? Are you looking, is it like just the bacteria? Well, just the bacteria first. Well, I know, I know, but as so we're saying, how many of this bacteria, how many of that bacteria? Okay. So we're, it's like, you almost get like a, I think you showed like a pie chart of the various, 
like you, you looked at um, I want to say you looked at different samples from I think it was mice and then you had like a twin study you talked about in your research and then you like I think you showed like compositional differences between samples between those people or is that what we're talking about yeah exactly it's okay all, it's all determined with the gene expression stuff that's how okay. that's how that's how you measure bacteria okay in the gut is with the gene expression okay i was gonna say i was just trying to get my head around that particular phrase yeah well that encompasses yep 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 actually the first paper i wrote i used them interchangeably because i didn't know the difference mm. and then i got called out in review so you're like oops my bad um, so this is something that like, I, I told my girlfriend, I was going to talk to you cause I listened to your, to your, um, talk and kind of talked to her about it. And she said, she made a good point. So we do, do we know why different people have this different expression or, or different microbiota present versus like, we're all humans. So like, why don't we have the same set essentially? Like, do we know why there's such a, a you know, difference especially in that twin study where you where you use like samples of twins where one was obese and the other one was fairly slim you know when you would think that twins would have something that was almost identical same you would think yeah um there are so many factors that influence the composition of these bacteria which ones are there and which ones aren't um things even starting from birth uh babies born um, vaginally versus with a C-section, mm -hmm. having a C-section, totally adverse implications that, that are discussed for the microbiome of the baby. So, so literally, as soon as you're born, right, that microbiome starts taking shape. So that's just one example of many. Um, if I had someone move in differently across the office from me, that could change my microbiome, right? That just uh, what I eat can have a huge, profound effect on my microbiome. Whether or not I exercise, we're, we're coming to learn, can have an effect on the microbiome. Um, how much I sleep. And then it, it also, and, and this we don't really know, is how rapid can changes in the microbiome occur? Can they occur from day to day? Honestly, probably so. Mm -hmm. And that's those are those are all though that is a question that we're still trying to trying to figure out. I saw a study a little while back. Um, I actually asked my registered dietitian about, it and she had no idea what I was talking about. But you seem like the guy to ask. Um, so the study said something about like um, foreigners coming to the U.S. and I think the phrase that they had used was after they spent it was like a year plus in the U.S that their microbiome I, they use something like the word destroyed but i think you would probably characterize it thinking about what you said so far it's probably changed rather than destroyed um do you know what i'm talking about first of all but if it all those these people also gained a, a significant amount of weight which may or may not have to do with their you know microbiome but what like the implication seems to be that there's something bad about the U.S. that makes people gain weight. It's kind of where it seemed like this study was, or the author who was citing the study was trying to point to. Mm -hmm. um, if you know what I'm talking about, yeah. Like, what would you do with those? 
people, I guess, to, to try to make them not overweight anymore. Yeah, well, fortunately for them, it's not just coming to the U.S., right? It's their lifestyles when they get to the U.S. Mm-hmm. So if you think about, um, you know, someone maybe was a foreigner, how they were getting to work, uh, transportation probably going to be different. They might have gone from walking or um, in Boston even. Uh, I would, you know, either ride the bike or, or take the T. Mm-hmm. Now I live in Georgia. Public transportation's horrendous. Uh, <sighs> the roads, there's no bike lanes. And Mm -hmm. so I drive, I sit in the car every day for 20 minutes to get to and from work. If you think about that every day, right? Throughout the year, the activity pattern's different. That's Mm going to influence uh, intestinal transit time or said in another word, how quickly food moves through my gut. So that's Mm going to have profound implications for the bacteria in my gut. Another, probably more obvious one is just the differences in what they're eating nutritionally, right? So they're going from diets that are probably pretty rich in whole foods, um, things that are not, are nothing is really processed and high in fiber. And, and fiber in particular is one of the nutrients that is uh, emerging as, as uh, fantastic for the bacteria in our gut and that encourages the growth of many healthy bacterial species. They come to the U.S., they're busy, right? They're driving, and where do they stop for dinner? KFC. Not mm-hmm. nothing wrong with KFC or, or Cookout or, uh, or Wendy's. And so they're eating these diets that are really high in saturated fats mm-hmm. and, and very low in fiber and, and vegetables and fruits. And so what's that doing? It's changing the composition of the gut bacteria. Um, we're going to promote the growth of species that are not good for you, species that are going to cause things such as leaky gut, which is going to trigger systemic inflammation and chronic disease, um, and, and just bacterial species that are associated with all other sorts of, of adverse health consequences. So fortunately, it's not moving to the U.S., right? But the lifestyle changes that accompany that move to the U.S., mm-hmm. so I think it's more uh, a lifestyle and behavioral modification associated with living in a sedentary country like this yeah and i mean that's great to hear too just like i said it's, stuff like that pops up and you're like okay i don't think that's actually the case it's like what we were saying earlier is that that misattribution of um the results from a study for a particular out, right, right what's, a particular what's... narrative of whatever they want to sell what you know whatever that narrative is so it's like you got to find the person who actually knows what's going on to try, to try to like clarify things. Yeah. Um, Michael, wow, I'm like watching the clock because I know you got a student coming in oh, here. It's okay. It's um, He's getting to take the quiz early. So <laughs> just trying to make sure we're on time because I know, you know, I watched your, your, your lecture was 50 minutes and I'm like, we could probably be on call for three hours if we like really wanted to deep dive into every, everything. So I'm like trying not to go too deep, but get enough information. Yeah. Um, so I'm kind of curious, like how, with the research you do, you know, figuring out all this, does that inform in any way how you train or how you train the athletes that, that are under you? It does. Uh, um, the microbiome stuff, somewhat. Uh, again, I'm not a registered dietitian, so I try to do, I try to stay away from 
too much nutritional advice. Okay. Um, but I, I do like a lot of the stuff I've learned in school and I even teach a sports nutrition class. So, um, like the recommendations I'll give to the athletes I coach for, uh, carb loading, for example, going into an event or, uh, even how much to eat or to drink or, or, you know, when they're out train, when they're out training and racing, those kinds of things will definitely inform, uh, inform my coaching right now. I'm doing a study. <laughs> One of my master's students is super interested in thermoregulation. So mm -hmm. uh, the effect of temperature and humidity on performance. And I, I live in Savannah right now, right? And so mm -hmm. obviously, uh, basically live in the jungle. And, uh, and so she was like all interested in doing this really long training study. And I was like, listen, that's not going to be possible. But one of the things I find with the, the, uh, the athletes I coach is they'll, some of them from time to time, their numbers outside versus inside are just so different and they get on the trainer and all of a sudden they can't get close to the powers they're putting outside. Right. And then I'll just ask them the seemingly obvious question. Are you using a fan? Mm -hmm. And they're like, uh, no. And I'm just like, Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, and so like, we're doing a study right now comparing physiological responses to, to training with and without a fan. Mm -hmm. um, just like a single session and so that's kind of like a cool master's thesis project is, are you like uh are you quantifying like the speed of the fan like how much air airflow there is yeah we have an anemometer which measures okay. speed um and so we're using the fan at a, at a set wind speed versus just doing the session without the fan okay um, but at the same we're keeping heart rate fixed between the sessions Okay. So we're looking at how much theoretically, what's the difference and how much work you can do. And then what is the metabolic implications of that? So we're measuring blood lactate between the two to see if that has any effect. Okay. Um, we're looking at oxygen consumption, caloric expenditure, uh, perceived exertion, whole, whole sundry measures. So, right. One thing I'm always, I'm always interested about in like with exercise studies is how do you control for levels of fatigue between training sessions and a study? Yeah, so fortunately, this is just a three, just a three time point study. They do a max test and they come in and have two training sessions. Um, you know, doing things like making sure it's same day of the week and same time of day for chronobiological control helps. Mm -hmm. We tell them not to exercise for twenty four hours prior. Okay. But besides that, I mean, you know, you can only control so much of someone's life. So right. you do something like. Uh, go see the Avengers the night before and they come in and they slept three hours. You know, that's just, I mean, you, you can, you can only tell them so much. Right. Um, yeah. And so you just, part of that is getting enough participants that hopefully. That's what I was going to say. I was like, sample size should hopefully. Yeah. It's like you get, you know, if your sample size is 40, but your sample size is a thousand, that should hopefully smooth out a lot of those variations. I, I don't clearly conduct a lot of like, primary research myself um though i had some classes and a little bit of experience with it um for my psychology degree um so it's psychology and math the oddest combination ever um but it's, so it's like sometimes i think about that stuff and then i don't i don't think all the way through it but like i said it just it just kind of just always strikes me because i know you know i can well with my coach we'll do the same training session you know and i have a two up one down periodization block and we can do it you know 
two blocks back to back. Say we're doing the exact same block, just two one, the next two one, and I could have you know a really nice increase. Or for some reason, maybe I'm extra fatigued, and like the second time, which should be better, you know, because you should have that bump after that recovery. It's just not. Yeah. So I'm like, anytime I see the exercise studies and and then the like the end number is really low. I'm like, oh, okay, you didn't have that many participants. Like, did you control for all those things? How do you control for all those things? So I didn't know if there was like yeah, uh, a, me- a method or something exercise. you could do. Exercise is so potent though, right? That yeah. sometimes you don't need a huge end. Yeah. So, yeah. But yeah, and man, getting subjects is hard. <laughs> <laughs> no one would be graduating with their master's degree if I made them get too many subjects. But uh, yeah, we try our best. You need a thousand people to do a VO2 max test on the treadmill. And then from there, yeah, that would be... Yeah, ride for 40 minutes on a very hard bike seat. <laughs> Going to be and tough. 50 heart rates. Like, it was pretty hard, you know. Um, yeah, we do our best. Yeah, so did you meet... Um, have you met Todd Buckingham? Yeah. I was assume so. I was like, he was gathering all of his data from people at the national championship, which I thought was a clever way to try to get a larger sample size. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's clever. <laughs> um, so I kind of I want to follow up with something that went on with you personally. I I read that you had a small labral tear in your hip. Yep, still you do. Cortisone. So, yeah, so do you, no, no so surgery. Do you got the cortisone injection. Yeah. So, so how are you doing now? Still um, doing okay? Pretty good. Yeah, it was. Uh, funnily enough, I guess like you know Todd has one too. I, I don't know if he told you. Yeah, that. yeah, I know. And, you know, yeah, I've had like, I had a lot of friends have it, have them before. And so when I, when I felt it going into Kona, I was like, this is what it is. And fortunately I didn't go get it looked at until after. Um, (laughs) I thought, I thought I was probably done. Um, and then I actually, uh, got in touch with a couple physical therapists who, uh, do a bit more research. Uh, there's a lady named Lindsay Plass actually, who, who reached out. And told me about her experience with it and all the research she does. There's a guy named uh, Mike Ryman at Duke, who's a PT and a PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've done a lot of research comparing operative versus non-operative treatment of labral uh, tears in athletes. And uh, it seems the data would suggest right now that there's really no better uh, end result with getting surgery for these labral tears than there is just using uh, physical therapy and, and not doing operative therapy for it. Like the end result, six months, one year after the fact is usually about the same between the two groups. Um, so after that, I was pretty set on not getting it, uh, not getting surgery. And I actually went to Atlanta to see like one of the best people in the country for it. And he goes, yeah, man, just try a cortisone shot and see how it works. Um, that seemed to have settled it down. I've actually done some dry needling, which very unscientifically, I could not tell you the merits of, but it seemed to help. Um, and yeah, it's, it's pretty good for now. So I think knock on wood. Yeah. It's like, it's just like, it seems to be so common. And I know, um, I, my girlfriend had just gotten into running and she'd only been running for a year and it happened to her. She did end up doing arthroscopic surgery and she doesn't come from like an athletic background. So, um, that's one of the things I'm interested in too, just on a personal level is like the difference between athletes that have it and come back which seem to have um like a greater resiliency since you already have like the musculature and 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 stronger ligaments and like all of that from a history versus somebody like her who you know 
didn't come from an athletic background and was kind of tr- getting into it and then got derailed. Yeah. Um, the, the one, the funny thing is, so I don't know if you've, if you've heard this, but 75% of people asymptomatic, if they were put in an MRI machine, it would be found that they have a labral tear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I saw, I saw so some stat like it's really population real high. Is, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's interesting. It's a good moneymaker for the orthopedists. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was, so I, as I told you, I was trying to set up um, a time to chat with Richard and I was trying to get some intel on you, something I couldn't find from your Instagram. Uh-huh. And Richard told me you have a baby on the way. Is that? Yeah, in August. So, we're so, really so does that mean no more training, just total baby time or what's, what's going to happen once, once the baby's yeah. here? I wouldn't, my wife wouldn't like me as a person if I wasn't doing any training. <laughs> okay. Um, no, I'll, I'll still be training, but it's going to be, uh, my sessions are going to have to be very high quality and a little bit lower quantity. I've never been a big proponent of big training. Um, when I did Kona, I, I think I pushed myself too much and I was doing about 17 hours a week. And I think that was way too much for me. Mm-hmm. I tend, I tend to thrive off. 10 to 12 with the occasional 13 or 14 hour week. Um, and so when baby comes, I think it's going to be more, uh, probably more that eight to 10 window. Um, okay. I don't mind waking up at four in the morning, although I may already be up. Although he may already be up. So <laughs> <I was> thinking... <laughs> um, but it's, it's definitely, uh, put travel on. It's, it's kind of nice cause it, you know, uh, kind of puts life into perspective a bit for me. Mm-hmm. Um, It'll be, it's more important, obviously, than work or triathlon. So, yeah, um, I think it's probably good, but it's going to be a change. This is something I see around here a lot. So I think this is kind of the most important question. Are you going to get a running stroller and be that um, guy? For sure. I don't know if you saw the uh, the lady who ran the 121, I guess. She set the record. Uh-huh. It was like it was like six months or, or eight months after she gave birth, ran a 121 of this Thule stroller. <laughs> so it's like already been decided upon right that uh that i'm that's the one we're gonna get but i guess you can't even run with them until they get like a little bit older because you don't want to shake them around right right you get the next ability you can't just like strap them in and yeah <laughs> go for it yeah yeah um so uh yeah definitely getting you know not not uh sparing any expense when it comes to stroller purchases <laughs> That's like, I think, like a next goal, right? It's like, well, went to, done Boston, done Kona. Now I want to, like, win a 5K with a stroller. You outright win. Savannah's not overly competitive. Okay. <laughs> okay. So you're going to go hunting for one and figure out, like, all right, I, you know, normally maybe I'd run a 15. I can think I could do a 1630 with a stroller. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, try to like you know sabotage the uh, one guy who I know. Well, you just—I think if you put helmet on the baby, you know, assuming we got next ability, put a helmet on the baby, so nothing's gonna go wrong. You just use the use the stroller as like a bumper car almost, and just like start taking out people's legs from behind. Yeah, yeah. they'll be like they'll either have to go out harder and then they'll gas themselves, or they'll just decide to get behind you and. I have a pretty dog, so I'll just fix her to the front of the stroller. 
that could work too. We'll be a force to be reckoned with. People are <laughs> tripping all over us. I hope you put that on your Instagram. That'll be pretty, pretty yeah. interesting to see. Yeah. I don't know what the wife would think about that. It's like getting your wife at like the the finish line with you got and like the whole I'll call it a train at this point since we've got you and the baby and the stroller and the dog, <laughs> the train coming through with the finish line and the time clock. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. So, but yeah. Um. So you listen to Chris's episode, so you know I ask everybody this question, um, because, and it, you, it's particular to you because you stud, study the gut. Um, but it's universal to eat food. So I'm always curious what, if everybody had one food they could eat for recovery for the rest of their life, only one food, what would you choose? Oh man. Uh, probably, I mean, am I allowed to just give you like a genre like Mexican or does it have to? No, yeah. Like, like, is it a burrito? Is it a taco? Are you like a chimichanga? Are you, are you eating Tex-Mix? Are you eating authentic Mexican? Like what? You gotta give me something a little more specific. It it definitely be a burrito with a nice beer. Okay. So that's okay. It's like I said, it's always like it's always curious just because I feel like the you know, you, you read all these articles and everybody says, Oh, you should eat this or you should eat that. But at least so far with my interviews, it's like everybody has a little more mundane answer. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, the best thing for recovery, hands down, would be chocolate milk, which that'd be, you know, I'd follow it up with some ice cream or a milkshake. Um, but chocolate milk is undoubtedly the best thing for recovery, if you're looking just from a health perspective. Yeah. Um, you know, you're replenishing glycogen and repairing muscle, so it's, it's the two for um, an action. Yeah, I had uh, Dr. Jason Carp on, and he was, as far as I remember, he's one of the original people that did the study to show that chocolate the milk chocolate actually has that efficacy from james madison huh from james madison uh i'm not sure okay because the chocolate milk study i think was done by mike saunders at jake madison at james okay. madison. i guess that's that's what he had said something about that and i may be mis- misquoting him i'd have to go back to his episode but i know he no, said it's called the chocolate milk study i think in pubmed yeah i i i feel like he said he was either a part of that or did it's, it's been two months since i spoke to him so it's like so where is he do you know he lives in San Diego. Okay. Um, but he's I don't know, he's he's a big running guy. He's written like eight books and does all this research and whoops. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of people. There's a lot of people very I mean, as we know, people are very interconnected, but there's also like these people are just outliers or you're like, I should know that person. Yeah. yeah um, but yeah, you know, functionality is the chocolate milk, but if I'm just trusting my gut, you know, the burrito is hard to beat. <laughs> Solid. All right, Greg, um, if people want to follow you so they can make sure they are not being lied to by pop articles, where can they find you? Yeah, so it's Dr. Greg Rosicki on Instagram and, and Twitter. Good deal. Thanks for coming on today, Greg. I appreciate it. Yeah, good talk to you, Jesse.